Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, we continue the series on property core skills, and this week is uh, content week. So it's just me, and we're going to be talking about managing budgets and cash flow as the core skill that we need to, to master in this area. So it's it's one of these that I think, how do I put it, it can, it, it can get easily missed and um, put to one side, let's just say that. But I think it's vital that we get the um, discipline in place to be able to manage our budget, which is predict, predicting the future effectively, and indeed our cash flow, so that we can see uh, the highs and lows or the sensitivities along the way. And essentially, I want to break down the discussion today into three broad areas. So we've got uh, evaluating deals and projects. So that's really um, assessing them before we've actually bought them. So before we buy something, let's evaluate them and set up the budget at that point in time. Once we've done that, if we decide to go ahead and buy it, when we might go into a project phase. So if it's a BRR project, for example, you might set up a, um, some kind of budget evaluation. If it's a development project, you certainly would. So you'd, you'd set up the budgeting and the cash flow for undertaking projects and developments. That's the second category. And the third category is really looking at long-term buy and hold. So rental property or rental portfolio, uh, budgeting and cash flow. So they're the three broad categories that I want to break this down to. There's actually a lot of overlap in, in fact between them, uh, but I'm going to just emphasize the, the key points in each particular area. So we're going to start with uh, deal and project evaluation. So remember, this is looking at a deal before we choose to buy it or acquire it. And uh, Stephen Covey says we need to begin with the end in mind. And so that means we need to somehow predict the future. Um, why are we looking to take on this property? We, we should have an idea of the outcome that we're aiming to achieve. So that could be a rental property that we're, we're planning to tenant, for example, uh, or it could be a flip project that we're planning to resell. Of course, it could be much more complex. It could be a development project that we're you know, uh, going to break down into separate units and maybe sell them all, maybe rent them all, maybe mix and match between them. But the idea is that we should know what we're aiming at right from the beginning, and we set up our evaluation with that in mind. So we know what our target is, we can measure that target, then we start to break it down, kind of work backwards, if you like, and uh, and document you know, how the numbers are going to stack up. And so budgeting and cash flow is a forecasting tool, okay, because we're predicting the future. So it's a forecasting tool, tool in this context, certainly. Later on, we're going to talk about how we also look backwards. Uh, and so it's like using it as uh, to look in the rearview mirror as well as predicting the future. So it's like driving a car, if you can imagine. So right now we're going to we're, we're predicting driving the car going forward, not necessarily looking back, but actually we can look back to see our past experience, which plays a part in you know getting accurate figures, for example. So with budgeting and cash flow forecasting, we need to know uh, what to expect. 
uh, or it helps us know know what to expect in fact. So if we plot this out over a period of time, we can go, oh, okay, well, that's going to use this much money in, you know, in my works budget or my holding costs or my financing costs, for example. So we know what to expect in that sort of area. Um, it's going to help us make decisions. Is it a good deal? Is it a bad deal? What if I did this instead of that? So it's going to help us make decisions once we've plotted it out. And the other thing I really like, um, you know, especially with spreadsheets, is the idea to scenario test. Well, that sounds fancy, doesn't it? So just test out different, you know, situations. So um, whenever I look at a project, for example, I look, uh, if, I'm, if it's a project, I'm often looking at the rental or a flip or a combination. So I've got at least two scenarios there. What if I sold it? Uh, that's the flip, obviously. And what if I retained it, which would be the rental option? What if I undertake it, uh, undertook a project to increase the, um, you know, standard and therefore the the viability of this particular property versus what if I just did a lick of paint and, and rented it as it is? What difference does that make to the rental? What difference does it make to my ROI? So it allows me to test, if you like, different scenarios and to plan that out. And once you've plotted this out in a spreadsheet in particular, you can play around with it. You can create new tabs and different variations. So um, you can probably tell quite enjoy this part of the of the role and and i was a i was accountancy trained after all and so uh, i guess these principles have stuck with me i did quite like the number crunching bit now if you don't like the number crunching bit bit um then you know you can you can either decide to get good at it or you can decide to bring someone else around you who is good at it so that might come at a cost obviously if you have to pay for that uh, particular service but it's worth doing so we talked about forecasting <clears throat> and then some of the principles that I wanted to outline in this particular area were that, you know, it, it well, first of all, it allows us to plot different scenarios. And, and what I tend to do with my projects in particular is to look at a best, mid and worst case scenario. Some people just look at, you know, you know, best and worst case or expected case, worst case. It doesn't matter. The point is you're saying, uh, what is my optimistic outcome and what is my pessimistic outcome? There may be a middle ground um, as well. So, you know, plot out different scenarios. And, and the idea being that um, we don't go in with just the rose tinted spectacle view of how great this property deal is going to be. We actually say, well, uh, what if we don't get that rent that the letting agent suggested I was going to get? What if my, you know, my project costs overrun? What effect will that have? So that's where you get, you get different scenario um, planning uh, into your into the into one of the principles here. Um, the other principle is to use realistic market rates wherever possible. So you know, realistic cost of works. Um, realistic rental values, realistic end, you know, property values, refinancing um, costs and rates, etc. So that involves a degree of um, test of market positions and also, you know, experience. And if you don't have that experience, then you need to really find people who have the experience. So, for example, you could talk to a letting or an estate agent to get an idea of end values, whether it be rent or uh, sales value. Bearing in mind, estate agents often talk about asking prices, not sold prices. So sometimes they can, uh, you know, peg it up a notch or two, and that can dash your expectations when it comes to selling or refinancing, um, in terms of what you actually get. So, with a with a you know hint of caution, in talking to to people who maybe have a vested interest or uh, a slight bias, let's say, 
But you, you, know, you, can, you can talk to builders uh, about pricing up a project, and I suggest you do. You can talk to other investors who might have done something similar. We had a conversation just last night saying, I've been quoted you know, £12,000 for a kitchen. Uh, is, that, is that market rate? And then we all piled in with our experience of what we've been paying for kitchens. And um, it was a very different scenario. So you know, lean on other people's experience. You can also use tools such as Price Your Job. I think it's Price Your Job, the similar ones, which give an idea of how much it costs to do certain, you know, DIY, well, not DIY jobs, because obviously they're not done by you, but certain jobs in your property you can do. You can, uh, you can, you know, if it's a big project, you can hire a quantity surveyor who can give you an idea based on market rates, both uh, on um, uh, materials and labor costs. And uh, there are some services out there now where you can also uh, get jobs priced up, you know, and in between phase off plans. So um, I think it's, oh, I forgot what it is, Build Aviator. That's what I was trying to think of. Build Aviator is an example uh, of that kind of thing. So, you know, test it and get real market rates. Um, the other thing a lot of people forget is to allow what I call for provisions and contingencies. So a lot of people go, well, you know, um, I'm, I've just, I'm doing a refurb. Uh, on this project, so um, and, and I'm talking more about the rental side of it going after this, but um, I, I won't need to maintain it because I've just done a fancy refurb. You know, there's no no point allowing any maintenance costs in my figures. Um, and by the way, you know, this tenant's going to stay there for three years, so I won't allow any voids. Oh, and by the way, you know, uh, uh, interest rates um, are, are very low, so I'm not going to predict them going up. So. Um, Actually, I'd suggest not doing that and actually allowing for reasonable uh, provisions and contingencies in your budgeting. That's one of the principles. And if the deal still stacks up, having allowed a sensible provision or contingency for things happening, then, you know, great, you can you can go in with confidence. And if those things don't actually happen, well, it's all an upside, isn't it? But it's worse, you know, it's much worse to try and go in uh, the other way around, where you go in thinking, um, I'm definitely not going to get any voids, but then you get one. I'm definitely not going to have any maintenance costs, but you get some. So um, definitely have provisions and contingencies. It's going to aid you making good decisions and hopefully have a better outcome. Know what your objectives key performance indicators or KPIs and targets are so that you can measure the results and then you can actually make you know a good decision. So these are some of the principles when it comes to budgeting and cash flow management um, with regard to projects. Didn't really talk about cash flow so much, but um, cash flow is sometimes different to you know your your profit. Well, it is definitely different to your profit. You know, some things don't get uh, don't have a cash effect, and some things do. Uh, but you know, actually pr predicting your cash flow needs is also really essential. That you know, say you're involved in a project, you know when you need to pay people, so you can plot to have the funds ready in good time. But equally, not necessarily uh, sat in the bank doing nothing if it's not needed for six months. So it can help in that sense too. So that's deal and project evaluation, the first section I wanted to cover today. The next section is uh, project budgeting and cash flow. So this may or may not apply. So if you're just looking at buy-to-lets, generally speaking, you might not have a project to worry about. But a project, as we spoke about on a previous episode, you know, could be as simple as changing the carpets and painting the walls. Now, you might not necessarily need to go to a detailed budgeting, you know, <laughs> tool uh, or, or spreadsheet with multiple lines and tabs. But, you know, it's sensible, you know, to have a schedule of works and to be able to predict what each section might cost and then to test that. So, yes, it probably is worthwhile. So with um, 
projects, budgets and cash flow. The idea here is that we have um, you know, a budget versus actual position. And this helps us to show what are called variances uh, in real time. So if you maintain um, this, it doesn't have to be too fancy. It's just two columns. So line item, you know, for example, painting and decorating, budget cost, I don't know, £2,000 to paint the house. Um, actual, oh, what do they charge me? Oh, they charge me 2500 So the variance is £500 in that case. And of course, if you can imagine building up your budget with all of the different line items, putting in the budget line in uh, or the budget figure in one column, and then putting in the actual as you go in the um, uh, in another column, rather, you can see A, what the difference is or the variance between the two figures. Uh, and then you can see, well, how, how is my project actually doing here compared to what I thought it might do? But also it'll help you going forward. So if you maintain this for all of your projects, uh, you're then going to build up knowledge that you can utilize on subsequent projects. And then hopefully you won't be falling into the same trap. Oh, we thought it'd be £2,000 to decorate a property, but the last three projects we've done, it's actually averaged £2,500. So actually that will help us to be more realistic on the next project that we undertake. So um, it, it, it's useful for managing the project as you go um, you know, and seeing the, uh, the changes between what you're predicting and what is the actual, but also useful to look back um, and refer to to make better decisions on your next um, acquisition or your next project. Ideally, with a project, you should show a timeline. So, um, and, and, and I'll explain and then I'll tell you what I do. Um, so have a timeline which shows potential sensitivities or shortfalls in cash in particular, uh, well in advance so that you've got time to react. So I'll give you an example. I, I have a, a 12 month rolling cash flow forecast, which looks at all my developments. So uh, each development has a tab and then I've got a consolidated tab, which summarizes the overall position. And what I do is every single month is I go in and I just reevaluate my projection or my prediction of my cash needs per project for the next 12 months. Obviously, I don't necessarily need to spend money on every single project every single month for a 12-month period, um, but I've got all my incomings, all my outgoings, all plotted. And then by project, I can see uh, where the sensitive areas are from a cash point of view. And also overall, I can see where my sensitive uh, sensitivities are. So that's telling me when I'm going to need money. Uh, and then when I look at my summary tab and I've got my 12-month rolling cash flow forecast open, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a red zone, as I call it, you know, a few months ahead. I'm thinking, oh, okay, um, I need to find some money round about, you know, where are we now? We're in, uh, we're in late August at the time of recording. So, uh, oh, round about December, I can see a red zone. Oh, no, that means I'm below the line, underwater, or in other words, I won't have enough cash to meet my requirements. So what am I going to do? about that and the good thing about you know a 12-month rolling uh, cash flow is i can see the future before it happens and of course then the you know I, every month i update that and i can see whether it's changed and that enables me to actually um, take action uh, if i can see that i need extra cash in december but we're in uh, august i've got three or four months to fix the problem in advance of the problem so it's very very useful um, as a prediction tool and uh, a decision-making tool and a planning tool, essentially, uh, on our projects. So you've got your individual project budget versus actual, so you can track your performance. You can look back on all your projects to see what your actual position was uh, to make better you know, judgments and decisions on future for, um, 
projects, and you can use it as a prediction tool, especially from a cash point of view, to see how you're doing and, uh, and make adjustments um, to your needs as you go. And what I would say is, uh, you know, use this as a tool to either course correct. So if you see things going off the rails a little bit with a project, you've got a couple of things to do. You can either watch it go off the rails and crash, or you can actually course correct and change, you know, the direction of the project. So you could uh, perhaps value engineer, um, which means, reduce, you know, change, change the specification of certain things that are lower spec to try and snatch back some cost. Um, you can uh, change the, uh, uh, obviously during a project, this is a lot more difficult, uh, the further in you go, you could change the layout, for example, to get a you know, better uh, use of the footprint. You can um, change the use of the property from maybe a long-term rental to a short-term rental if you saw that the rental performance wasn't so good or even vice versa. So, you know, course correct and change direction. And of course, contingency plan, a bit like what I said with the cash flow. So if you see a red zone, ah, well, okay, I might need a bit more cash then. Um, so uh, I, better, I better start working on how I'm going to find that extra cash. And what I suggest you do is to, is to maybe use, you know, red, amber, green dashboard system. Um, that's always very useful. Uh, you know, you can color code things, red, amber, green. Obviously, red is not going so well. Green is like a smack on target and amber is something to watch out for. Uh, and that will allow you to look at each individual line and go, well, actually, how is that doing? What And why is that? And is there anything I can do about it? Or is there anything, anything at least I can learn for next time? So they're the principles when it comes to um, projects uh, that I wanted to share. The, um, the next section is really, so the first sections are, well, one is before we do anything. The second one was about dealing with projects in particular. This third category is really about um, if we've got long-term uh, rental property uh, or, or, or rental properties, which would then can constitute a portfolio and looking at, you know, some of the areas of budgeting and cash flow for long-term uh, buy and hold properties. So it's uh, post-acquisition post and post-project uh, uh, evaluation of the long-term rental performance of your property or properties. So we, we take it out of project phasing, which is looking at the rental side of things. So there's a slight distinction. Uh, this is going to be on an ongoing basis over a long period of time. So what are some of the principles that we need to take account of here? Well, probably one of the first things to note, and which often gets people caught out, particularly when it comes to doing your tax return, is the difference between what I call CAPEX and OPEX. Well, it's not what I call, it's what people in the accounting world call CAPEX and OPEX, or capital expenditure and operating expenditure. So in um, what you'll find when you do your tax returns is, uh, and you're doing your income and tax return, that's, that's all that's related to OPEX. So it's operating your rental property. What income and what expenses are allowable as far as the tax man's concerned as an offset against your income or your corporation tax? And that's the operating tax, uh, sorry, operating expense category. Whereas capital expenditure are things that are not allowable as, as deductions or um, income um, on your income tax return. So that might be a capital expense, which is subject to capital against tax. It's still corporation tax if you own for a company. Um, or indeed, it's a cost which would be classed as a capital cost and then is not allowed as a deduction from your income tax or your annual corporation tax. It's only recognisable if, if you sell that property and realise that gain. So capital expense and operating expense is, uh, is a big deal, actually. 
And, you know, you can get caught up in the minutiae of this as well. But there's a number of resources that you could um, use to help you if you really wanted to get to understand it. So I, I subscribe to a service called Tax Insider. You could buy a couple of books. As, as ta- um, I think it's called Tax Cafe. It's really useful. There's a couple of property uh, finance, uh, sorry, property tax books, property finance, that's my book. There's property tax books out there you can get as well, which outline this. But the thing is this, the rules are changing all the time. And, you know, the government and the taxman are tweaking the rules to tell you what you can and can't do, and they change. So the best thing, piece of advice is actually get yourself an accountant and rely on them because it's their job to stay up to date. So that's what I do. But at the same time, I do try and stay up to date with the knowledge as well. So CapEx versus OPEX, first principle. The second one is there's a difference between profit and cash. Yeah. So not all of what you go, goes for your bank account lands in your profit and loss account. And sometimes what goes in your profit and loss account doesn't go through your bank account. So there is a difference between profit and cash. So just don't get caught up with those things. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, you allow, just one very, very small, simple example to illustrate my point. If you, um, if you run your own property portfolio and you submit your tax return, your accountant should tell, you know, ask you a question along the lines of, oh, did you, did you use your home to help operate this business? Well, yeah, I mean, I've got an office or I've got a bedroom <laughs> that I use, you know, when I do my books and stuff. Great. Well, you, you, there's an allowance. It's called use your home as an office. It's a few hundred quid a, a year. And we can allow that as an offset against your tax bill. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah. So you can reduce your tax bill by having this allowance, but it hasn't touched your bank account. Okay. No one's giving you the money. They're just allowing it as a, as an allowance. So that's an example of uh, a non-cash allowable deduction, as they call it. And there'll be other examples in the opposite direction too. So um, I don't want to go too far into the accounting treatment because um, you'll either be that way inclined or you won't, but just be a little bit careful and either, as I mentioned, get yourself clued up with some of the resources I mentioned, or maybe get yourself um, an accountant who you can talk to about these things. And similarly, um, there's the principle of provisions, accruals, and contingencies. I kind of talked about it a little bit when I talked about project accounting, that we're putting in things into the forecast and into, into our budgets, which may or may not happen. But think they're likely to happen that provisions and accruals, they should happen. Actually, a provision and an accrual is something that should happen, or we actually know has happened, and we may need to make an allowance for it in our figures. So let me give you an example. Um, a, a really interesting, or a very simple one, is if you're doing your profit and loss account at the end of the tax year, you give, you know, you give your books, <laughs> sometimes it's January, right, um, for, for the submission by the end of January. So you give all your books and your papers relating to the previous tax year, which would have been the uh, 6th of April, uh, sorry, 5th of April and the prior prior 5th of April, right? You give everything to your accountant in January, you go, there you go, that's what I did. Um, up until the 5th of April, some people cut off at the 31st of March just to make things simple. And you go, that's me done. And then the accountant says, um, okay, that's absolutely fine. Well, my bill for that is a thousand pounds or whatever it is, right? Oh, but I didn't give you a thousand pounds before the... Um, before the end of 5th of April, just gone. And I'm probably not going to give it to you now. I'm probably going to give it to you when you give me the money, uh, give me the accounts back. So I might I might give you the money late January when I pay for your service. But you know, what you would do in the in the, your accounts is make a provision 
for that future expense, which is paying your accountant round about January following your year end, uh, it's a provision that it happened or it related to the period of accounting that you're recording. So um, you knew that was going to happen because the accountant's going to charge you just because it ha you know, you actually incur uh, spent the money rather. Uh, this is different seeing cash flow and, and profit sometimes. So you spend the money sometime after the year end, but you make a provision in your year end for it happening. And so th that's an example. Another example is you make provisions for, you know, what, whenever I do portfolio reviews, um, people often just show their actual position and then they work out their profit and it's like a really nice, big, juicy number. And, you know, sometimes you go, well, what about voids and what about maintenance? They're the two big ones that people often uh, either undercook or omit altogether. Oh, well, I've had the same tenant for three years, so there's no voids. Mm, okay. There hasn't been, so that's your actual reality. But in terms of budgeting and predicting the future, then you should make a, a provision or an allowance for some voids to happen because they will eventually happen. You know, if you're going to hold a property for decades, it's unlikely you're going to have the same tenant in the property for several decades. So you make a provision for a void, which is basically the gap between one tenant leaving and a new one coming in. Now, you well, may well be lucky, and therefore you'll say to me, Richard, it doesn't make sense. It didn't happen. I've got tenants who stay forever, blah, blah, blah. But no, just do it. Do it and put it in your numbers from a budgeting point of view. And the same with repairs and maintenance. So repairs and maintenance kind of boil down into a number of categories. So um, you've got your kind of what I call general repairs and maintenance, little things that happen here and there. Okay, you might, might need to tighten up a toilet seat and send your handyman in to do that. That's kind of a little thing that happens here and there. You might get knocks and scrapes and bumps um, from the tenants. You know, I, I came into a rental property recently and I saw there was a bit of wear and tear on the on the property. There's some marks on the wall. There's some, um, actually there's a burn on the carpet, which I'm really mad about. And because um, that is right in the middle of the carpet and that means the whole carpet needs to be replaced, but I don't need to replace all of the carpets in the whole house, but I might need to replace that bit of carpet there. Um, you know, if I want to maintain this property to the high standards, so those sort of things, then you get sort of regular upkeep and preventive maintenance. So you might need to do servicing of your boiler and that sort of thing. You might want to just do a general refresh of the paintwork every year or two, just to keep it fresh and attractive, those sort of things. And then you've got more longer term refurbishment and upgrade type of needs. So you might have just fitted a new kitchen, but maybe in you know, somewhere between five and 10 years, maybe not five, but, you know, seven to 10 years time, you might need to replace that kitchen with a new one. And you, make, you should really make a provision for that happening. Um, and, and then there could be even more significant structural issues like a new roof that needs to go on, for example. And over decades of ownership, all of these things will happen. And so you should really allow a provision for repairs and maintenance and upgrades and refurbishment and put it into your numbers. Otherwise, how are you going to afford it because you see, ideally, what you do is you put it into your numbers, you see if it's still profitable, and then you carve it out into a separate account. And then you can use those funds when the cost comes allow, uh, around. So that, that's another principle to have. So um, have, a, have you know, an eye on provisions, accruals, and contingencies. Contingencies are things that might happen, uh, but not necessarily. So, um, you know, damage would be an example. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, unfortunately, tenants will damage something and scarper and you're picking up the cost. So you think, ah, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but make a contingency and have it in your numbers.
The other area perhaps to consider is, you know, around debt and refinancing. So most people will be taking out buy-to-let mortgages or equivalent. And the, you know, you might say, well, Richard, I've just, I've just done that now, so I don't need to worry about that again. Um, well, actually, um, from a budgeting and cash flow point of view, there's a few things to consider there. So the first thing is, what will the interest rate be when it comes to renew your fixed rate? So people tend to go two, three, five-year fixed rates, sometimes longer. Um, but at the end of that term, you, you've got a couple of uh, decisions to make and options. Uh, you hopefully say, well, I'll just renew it. But what will the interest rate be in two, three, five, seven, ten years' time? So it's ideal that you kind of make some sort of provision for that. And then there's usually a cost associated with the refinancing. So there's a broker fee, there's a refinancing fee uh, from the lender. Uh, sometimes there's additional legal fees um, that take it, come into uh, play. Um, if you need to break the mortgage uh, sooner because maybe you're selling the property, then there could be early repayment fees. So have all that you know in mind and put it into your figures when it comes to your debt and refinancing. Another thing is you know, it's okay to sort of set up a budget and even to, um, you know, um, and, and, but the next thing is you need to put in the actual numbers. So don't just set up a budget and go, I think it's going to be okay. Well, there's cash in the bank, so it's all good. No, plot your actual numbers and then work out what the difference is. And equally, reconcile, um, especially when it comes to things like rent. Reconcile your rent, making sure you're getting paid on time. So um, that also points to another principle, which is do things in a timely manner. And I kind of do say, do as I say, not as I do here sometimes, because I don't always do diligently go through my entire portfolio and keep all my management accounts up to date, you know, every single week. Let's just say that. Um, but it's a good idea to have a, have a discipline to, you know, get it done on a timely basis, say monthly, and not just wait till the annual tax return and do it all in that go. So they're the principles. And then the, the other thing that kind of really comes into play here, especially, so probably in the first two sections, I've talked about spreadsheets quite a lot. And spreadsheets are a really fantastic tool, one of the best inventions, I think, um, that you could have. Very, very flexible, quite easy to use, um, easy to navigate, etc. But there's other software and technology that we can use to help us. And it particularly plays a part once we've got a long-term you know, buy and hold property or a portfolio. So spreadsheets are still good. Um, I still use spreadsheets a lot, you know, for, for my business. Um, it doesn't always need a fancy pants sort of accounting system uh, or a property management system, which are the other two areas that you could potentially look at. So you could have a property management system. Some examples would be Arthur, Lenlord, Patma. There's others available, but you know, if I mention those three, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. And that helps you to track your property management. And this touches on the budgeting and cash flow, but it isn't just budgeting and cash flow. It feeds into your budgeting and cash flow. So it's a tool that will help you, but it doesn't actually manage and control and track your budgeting and cash flow. So it's a, it's a kind of a middle ground. It just helps you to have everything in one place rather than have all your receipts in a shoebox. And um, the accounting systems is specifically related to your budgeting and the cash flow. So you've got Zero, you've got QuickBooks, you've got Free Agent, and there will be others, um, you know, accounting systems that you can have. Now, the best accounting systems are ones that integrate 
particularly with your bank account. So it just lightens the load a little bit. And usually you have to pay a subscription to have this kind of accounting package. And a lot of us will just resent paying that money and think, well, I'm not going to pay, you know, 20 quid a month or something for an accounting package. I'll just use a spreadsheet and I'll go and I'll get my bank statements and I'll just drop everything into it every month. That's absolutely fine as well, by the way. Use a spreadsheet, draw down your bank statements, upload it into your spreadsheet, uh, cross-check it against what you're expecting, say rent paid versus rent received to do a reconciliation, as it's called. And, uh, and off you go. But I think as you get uh, more complex or if you don't really feel comfortable, you know, doing using a spreadsheet and, uh, you know, just trawling through your bank statements, say once a month, then having um, technology like uh, an accounting system and or a property management system can really be useful. But of course, it comes at a cost. So if you've got one buy to let and it's running on minimal profit, let's say, you know, 150 250 pounds uh, pounds a month profit and you're shelling out say i don't know 20 quid for zero i can't remember the exact cost 20 quid for zero um i think landlord is free arthur comes at a cost uh i can't remember what it was exactly maybe it's 15 quid so we're up to 35 quid there a month then um you know the oh and by the way we're gonna we, we we're gonna give it to a bookkeeper to do for us and, and maybe that'll cost us i don't know 600 pounds a year or, or 50 pounds a month so we're up to about 85 pounds a month just to measure what what money we've got coming in so if we're making 80 you know 150 pounds to 250 pounds a month on a, a profit on a rental property and we're paying out say 85 pounds a month just to count the beans so to speak that probably doesn't represent good value. It's quite a massive carve out from our cost. So that would then point you into, okay, do it yourself, use a spreadsheet, check out your bank statements once a month and off you go. And that's what most people do. So they don't spend the money uh, because it isn't really worthwhile. And then they kind of have some kind of, you know, self-serve solution like that. But there will become a tipping point where the activity becomes too complex. Let's say you've got multiple prop properties in your portfolio, for example, and at which case uh, there's a tipping point where you go, well, you know what, I think I need something a bit beefier. And that might make you look at something like an accounting system, a management system, and potentially an outsourced bookkeeper to, to assist you as you grow. So it's one that you can scale uh, as your needs uh, scale as well. The other principle here in this area is to do what I call milestone reviews. So, um, you know, you might do a, uh, I mean, some people do it more frequently than this, but you might do a monthly rent recon reconciliation, for example. That's a really good discipline to have. Uh, some people might do that more frequently because if the tenant has missed their rent payment and you only identify it, like, let's say they're due to pay on the first of the month and you do your rent reconciliation at the end of the month, so the 31st, for argument's sake, that's obviously 30 days after maybe a tenant's missed their rent payment. So really you could do with an alert system before that. Because uh, if you start chasing uh, someone who's missed a rent payment uh, at least 30 days later, by the way, the next day, they're due to make their next rent payment. So they could be two months down by the time you've perhaps made the phone call or sent them an email or something like that. Of course, this is if you're self-managing, then that's too late. So you definitely need a, a faster system if you're self-managing. Um, your, your letting agent should be doing this for you. If you use a letting agent, that's one of their roles. Um, but definitely do a rent reconciliation. Make sure you're getting what you think you are getting. And then that will allow you to make decisions and to jump on it much more quickly. So some things you need to do quicker than others. Um, I, I always do an annual milestone review. 
So when I'm just counting my beans and ready to submit it to my accountants at the end of the year, tax year, ready to you know, process my accounts and pay my tax, etc., I also do a portfolio review. I look at how my portfolio has performed and I track it at that point in time as a matter of course, of course, right across the portfolio. And I'm looking for uh, properties that are performing well, properties that are performing so well. And that enables me then to ask good questions. The principle of this is to ask good questions. And the good question might be, is this property still performing as I expected? Can I do something else with it? Is there equity in the property that I could utilize elsewhere? So I'm asking good questions like that. So it enables me to do it. So that's my annual review. But I also have a, a review around what I call significant events. So a significant event is probably something related to an individual property uh, rather than the portfolio as a whole. And it, here's a couple of examples. So let's say the, there's, it's ten, a property's tenanted and then the tenant serves notice and then you think you need to change the tenants, uh, you know, tenants over. Now, it might well be that you, you just carry on as normal and, you know, just get, either get the letting agent or you go and find the tenant and, you know, off you go. But I think it's a trigger point to reevaluate what you're doing with the property. And uh, every time there's a tenant changeover or a remortgage or as a refurb due, I use that as a, as a significant event trigger to go and have a look at that property's performance. And it might actually change my mind about what I'm going to do next. So rather than just blindly carry on, you know, doing the same thing, I look at the situation and go, actually, is this the best thing for me right now? I had it recently. I had a property. It was in a semi-rural location down in Cornwall. I'd done a refurb on this project years ago. It was doing pretty well from a rental point of view, but it always, you know, seemed to to, you know, to have a tenant changeover, either in August or December, which are notoriously slow months. And so I had kind of extended void periods, uh, beyond average, if you like. So it always sort of dragged down the rental performance a little bit, because I'd have a void period of maybe up to six weeks, which is about twice the uh, national average, according to the RNLA. So um, it's like, well, is it... It's okay when it's tenanted, but it just takes forever to get it tenanted. And of course, I could have done different things. I could have said, right, let's try and have a, a tenancy that doesn't end in August or December, for example. Uh, but that doesn't always work if the tenant moves on to statutory periodic. But there we go. So that's something I could have done. But what I always do or did around the tenant changeover uh, period of time was I looked at the market. So I looked at the rental market and I said, well, what am I likely to get if I re-tenant? But I also looked at the sale market and I try and figure out, well, what, what's the property worth now? And what equity I've got if I got tied up into it? That's exactly what happened with my Cornwall property. Um, you know, things were sort of running along at what I call a normal level for a while. And then over a period of a, a year or two, prices just shot up. And I, I looked at the situation. I thought, well, I've got a lot of capital that's grown now in this property. And my rental performance is okay, but I do have these uh, long void periods. So I decided to sell the property rather than to re-tenant it and release the equity and reinvested it elsewhere in a property that will you know, perform at least as well, but would have, wouldn't have so many voids. So that's what I decided to do. And of course, then I need to look at things like capital gains tax, but um, and I, I had a very low capital gains tax position on that particular property, so it was fine. So there we go. You have uh, milestone reviews uh, regularly, annually, and perhaps at uh, significant events, as I mentioned. And again, I, I mentioned before, maybe having some sort of reporting dashboard system, which sounds fancy, 
but you know red amber green color coding or you know just look at you know budget versus actual and the variance but have a mechanism that actually you know allows you to see the performance of your uh, portfolio or your individual property over time um, is a is a good uh, you know, thing to review and the final topic really is about support and assistance so I've talked a little bit about what we can do. Uh, I've talked about, I've touched on a little bit about how we can get support. So the main areas of support and assistance are using software tools and apps. So I've talked about the property management systems. I've talked about the accounting systems uh, in particular. Uh, we could, uh, and that, that comes at a cost. So there's a trade-off here. So you know, we might want to be organized, but it comes at a cost and that will eat into our bottom line, but it might make our life easier and it might make us more, uh, have more control by having that kind of software in place. And some of it's free as well, by the way. So uh, you don't necessarily have to go for paid subscriptions, but there's drawbacks and limitations of the paid versus the unpaid uh, solutions. Then of course we could have a bookkeeper or something of that description. Now I call a bookkeeper someone who does the regular uh, uh, sort of accounting and record keeping and budgeting and cash flow for us. Uh, someone who's like you know, enjoys it, somebody who's good at it, um, and someone who has time to do it. But of course, that also comes at a cost. Um, but you know, if you're, um, for example, I don't know, husband and wife team, for example, it might well be that one of you is better than the other one at bookkeeping. One of you is better than the other one at sort of you know evaluating the numbers or actually working on the property or dealing with the tenants. So you could perhaps carve out the rule, uh, the discipline between you. But equally, you could hire somebody in. Uh, to do your bookkeeping for you and and the final area is really an accountant so some people do their year-end tax returns themselves uh, and file those themselves and that's fine uh, but equally uh, usually an accountant will save you money so it's worth engaging an accountant it costs probably upwards of 600 to about 1500 pounds a year typically to have an accountant to submit your year-end figures but really they should be advising you uh, to make sure you stay on track you don't get investigated by the tax man they should really be able to tell you ways in which you could save money i hinted at one earlier using your home as an office would be an example but of course you can find that out for yourself but the accountant stay up to date with all the rules and make sure you just stay stay straight they should really be saving you their fee that's my sort of gold a golden rule um you know how are you helping me save your fee this year mr accountant uh, some years they'll save you a lot some years they won't save you so much um but these things that support this assistance you know can help you um software bookkeeper accountant can also save you money uh, it can keep uh, you know on the right side of the of the rules and the regulations and the laws uh, free up your time so that you can focus your time and attention on other areas. So uh, don't don't necessarily, you know, scrimp and, and save too much in this area because, you know, I have a principle of if I've got more time available, I can make more money, which will enable me to pay for these people. So it's kind of a trade-off or an opportunity cost, if you like. So there we go. That's what I really wanted to cover today, uh, set the scene for the uh, panel discussion, which will be coming up next week. Uh, I've got a few people who talk about what they do with their particular portfolio. Hopefully that's been useful uh, to you to recap some of those principles. Um, I guess uh, just in drawing some conclusions, these show notes are going to be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. If you like to talk to me about anything from today's show or this series or property more generally, you know you can reach me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net by email, and I get those emails personally. Um, sometimes a bit slow to respond these days, but I do get them, so do email me, and I'll do my best to try and respond to you. Um, but I guess all that remains to say is thanks once again for listening to the podcast this week. 
And until next time on the Property Boys podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.